Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Emily Barrett, a bonds and currencies reporter, and I'm filling in for a vacationing Sarah Pontek. This week on the show, has the trade war turned into a currency war? On Monday, China led its currency weakened by the most since 2015. And that triggered volatility across all markets, and it sent U.S. stocks to their worst losses of the year. Then on Thursday, President Trump weighed in, putting more pressure on the Federal Reserve to take measures to weaken the U.S. dollar. So why is everyone fixated on foreign exchange rates this week? And what exactly can Trump do about it? We've got some smart guests on the show to unpack it all for us. And then we'll close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. And Mike, I believe that we've got now a What Goes Up hotline. Indeed we do. And that number, again, is 646-324-3490. So please do give us a call and tell us the craziest thing you saw in markets this week. And if you have a question for the hosts of the show, uh, drop it on our voicemail as well. And we may even play your voicemail on the podcast. But Emily, let's introduce the guests here. The first guest, now this is a guy who started out in the pits in Chicago back in the 90s making those crazy hand gestures. But he's had a variety of buy and sell side market roles over the last quarter century. He was a macro portfolio manager at Graham Capital in the U.S. and Nylon Capital in London. But we're lucky now to have him here at Bloomberg. He's a market strategist. He's the author of the Macroman column. And he's a blogger for Bloomberg Markets Live blog. Cameron Kreis, welcome to the show. Always a pleasure. Also joining us this week, Katie Greifeld. She's a rising star reporter on the Bonds and FX team here at Bloomberg. Katie, nice to have you. Thanks for having me. And Katie, I wanted to start with you um, because obviously FX is the story of the week by far. And you've done some some very interesting reporting. Uh, you had a Business Week story a couple weeks ago. I just want to read the headline. Chaotic messaging makes it hard to decode Trump's dollar policy. I got to say, I think President Trump may have read that story because on Thursday, then he tweeted this, quote, as your president, One would think that I would be thrilled with our very strong dollar. I am not, exclamation point. (laughs) Yeah, he definitely answered the question for us. We would have to tweak that headline if I wanted to write again today. (laughs) But it kind of heard it from the horse's mouth there that he doesn't like this strong dollar. You know, that's echoing things we've heard before. But now we have the added twist where he's starting to take action. I mean, he labeled China a currency manipulator. That's why I wanted to ask you, if you look at the currency market, there wasn't a huge reaction to that tweet. Um, You've also reported about how there is a lot of speculation in the market that the U.S. will intervene uh, and try to weaken the dollar. 
what exactly can President Trump do to accomplish that other than to continue to put pressure on the Federal Reserve? Well, exactly that. The U.S. could intervene. I mean, Trump complaining about the dollar strength, tweeting about it, you know, attacking the Federal Reserve. We've seen all of that. Now what markets are really waiting for is to see if he actually puts some muscle behind that and uh, directs Treasury to intervene, which would involve selling dollars to try to drive down the price. So, Katie, my question to that, though, quickly is uh, you've written before, I think, that investors have every intention of trying to buy up the dollar if there is a sign of uh, the U.S. heading toward intervention. Is it even a realistic proposition right now for the dollar to weaken much on that basis? Probably not. I mean, that was one of uh, the most fun stories I've written in the past few weeks is that if the U.S. did actually try to enter the market, try to sell dollars, that would just create a great buy the dip opportunity because the foreign exchange market trades over five trillion a day. So it's pretty huge. And the U.S. in the Treasury's exchange stabilization fund only has about 90 billion or something. So it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, and especially when you compare that to the reserves of China, they have over three trillion. Uh, there's just not a lot of firepower on the U.S. side. Now, Cameron, if you were back in your seat as a trader, uh, I don't think you're a fan of this type of tweeting by our president. Uh, you know, can you trade on this? Um, how do you sort of get through this type of environment where the president is sort of unprecedentedly trying to force markets to, to bend to his will? Well, it's yeah. I mean, it's the whole thing's broken. It's, it's so depressing. <laughs> it seems like every day I come in and I've got a new rant uh, about how the market, you know, the markets don't clear anymore. They're not allowed to clear anymore because of politicians and central bankers and, and what have you. How do you trade it? Well, you don't really until they demonstrate that there's actually an action behind the words. All it is is kind of empty rhetoric. And as we know, the president sort of likes to hold mutually incompatible views simultaneously. You know, this is the greatest economy ever, but it's being killed by the Fed uh, because interest rates are too high, the dollar's too high, what have you. I mean, at least, at the very least, you can say that the preference for a weaker dollar is consistent with his preference for narrowing the trade deficit with China because I think, broadly speaking, it's fair to say that Extreme currency strength or extreme currency weakness does lead to a a decline or an improvement in export growth moving forward. Um, But let's face it, against certainly against developed market currencies, the dollar is not doing anything. I mean, we've been in what seems like a three big figure range uh, against the euro all year. So, kind of, what's the what's the point? Trump's had a pop at Mario Draghi, and in fairness, Draghi does like to play his own little games. But we're not going anywhere. On that point, though, I mean, when we're talking about invoking the Fed and how we know that Trump has obviously bashed the Fed an awful lot, um, do you see this being a sort of a counterproductive uh, effect? Do you think that it's possible? I've heard some people say, for instance, that you know Trump has actually possibly averted a deeper cut because of his attacks on the Fed and the wish for the Fed to stay independent. Well, the problem is we, you know, we, we never know the counterfactuals. Um, certainly, the Fed has changed... Uh, course pretty dramatically this year from where they were at the end of last year. And it has had a demonstrable impact on financial conditions. Obviously, yields have gone down, equities have gone up. And I think you could argue that that in turn has given Trump a platform upon which to keep sort of re-upping the trade war rhetoric. And I suppose there's an argument to be made 
that if the Fed sort of didn't deliver what Trump wanted, which is easier monetary conditions, then Trump wouldn't have the wherewithal to keep sort of tweeting every few months that he wants to put more tariffs on China. So it's, it's you know, it, it, it's, it's a very difficult environment in which to operate because there's so many political levers that are, that are being pulled. And it's not an easy thing to necessarily predict when the president's going to come out with some 6 p.m. tweet that you know sends your beautiful trade down in you know in flames. So you're really missing being a trader right now. I take it. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, I sleep a heck of a lot better than I would if I still ran a portfolio. That's for sure. Uh, Katie, you also had an interesting story recently uh, that you helped report. Um, obviously, a lot of people sort of were maybe not expecting, but speculating, worrying that China would take uh, a step like this with its currency. And the other shoe that people are waiting to drop is uh, China's holdings of U.S. treasuries. Uh, Tell us about that story. Are people worried that China could eventually unload its massive pile of treasuries? Would that backfire on them if they did? Um, You know, they call it the nuclear option, mutual assured destruction. Uh, What is sort of the thinking uh, about that issue from the people you talk to? Well, it's definitely still seen as that nuclear option. It would hurt a lot for both sides, maybe more for China, because, you know, if they sold a whole bunch of their treasuries holdings, uh, that would sort of erode the value of whatever they had over. But I mean, talking to people on Monday after, you know, we got in and saw the yuan had really screamed through seven, uh, the people we were speaking to said, if they let that happen, if they decided to stop holding the line at seven, you really can't rule out the treasury's option. Because, I mean, there's a lot of pain that could come with a big devaluation in the currency. And uh, clearly there there was some calculus that uh, they were willing to withstand that pain. So that's what people were applying, that same logic to that huge pile of treasuries. It would still hurt, but it would send a pretty big message to the U.S. too. So, Katie, the trends that we've seen in terms of Treasury auctions recently, there's been, uh, I know that you've been following a little bit of kind of the tick data and that sort of stuff as well. Um, how can we sort of draw a line between uh, China's behavior in actually buying versus holding treasuries? I mean, it does seem as if they've stepped back from auctions a little bit. That seems to be the theory, although it's hard to trace. What, what kind of clarity do we have on that? Well, we spoke to Sebastian Galli at Nordea, and he said he will be watching the U.S. Treasury auctions for any signs of pullback. Of course, it's a little murky there because China can bid directly, indirectly. But I mean, even with that in mind, if you just look at the bid for treasuries over the past week, clearly there's been demand. Maybe it's not from China, but people are really looking to scoop up treasuries here. Cameron, let's bring you in on sort of both of the things Katie was just talking about. You know, A, is this nuclear option science fiction? uh, And B, talk about that level of seven yuan to the U.S. dollar. Um, Was it actually that sort of magic number being crossed or was it more basically that big rate of change in the weakening that we saw on Monday that sort of spooked out the rest of the markets? Well, the Treasury sales story is nonsense. I mean, people have been talking about this sort of thing happening for a dozen years. Um, We do have a little evidence of it happening in the past with Russia, who basically completely pulled out of the U.S. fixed income market um, and really ran down their holdings of of treasuries a a couple of years ago when they had some sanctions applied to them. But the thing is, is that China's stock of treasuries is so big, there's literally nowhere else they can put it. 
Okay, they can't put it in European fixed income, A, because it pays a negative yield, and B, because there's just not enough bonds for them to buy. So where are they going to put the dough? Are they going to, you know, get one of their diggers that they're, <laughs> that they're using to dig holes uh, for, for infrastructure and just put a trillion dollars in a hole and hire some guys, you know, hire some guys to, to guard it? No, of course not. Well, but yeah, but say hypothetically they didn't unload it all at once. They sold a couple hundred uh, billion in a big block trade one day at, at a market order. Uh, you know, wouldn't that be enough to sort of get Donald Trump's attention? I mean, yeah, I theoretically, I suppose. But if it also were to submarine the value of their existing holdings, and let's face, I mean, let's let's remember that a lot of these holdings are kind of they're trying to make some money off of it. Uh, you know, it's kind of cutting off your nose to to spite your face a little bit. Now, in terms of seven of the yuan, yeah, I mean, it's a it was a big psychological level. I mean, people in the West, we all like to think of the feng shui and all the sort of the mystical Chinese cultural things, but uh, apparently eight is the real mystical number oh, in China. Oh, no, seriously? We seven have to doesn't, our seven, seven doesn't really hold much uh, numerological uh, allure, so there's no sort of hidden messages there. Right. Um, yeah, but they did defend that level. Uh... Well, it's not so, so much defending it as they just didn't, you know, they didn't put the fix close enough to it that... Um, the freely traded market would would push through it. That's obviously changed, and it is a rational response to the tariff threat. The way that China can offset some of the impact of tariffs is to make the currency um, to make the currency more competitive. And if it comes in a context where it's not so severe that it encourages capital flight, um, then for their perspective, it's a it's sort of a winning strategy. And you know, as for the United States labeling them a c- currency manipulator. It's kind of like you've seen the movie Team America where Hans Blix is there in North Korea and he says, we're very angry with you and we're going to write you an angry letter. That's essentially all that it entails. Is the <laughs> I'm US so glad that's w- what you quoted from Team America. Hot This is a family podcast. Uh, you know, it's essentially <laughs> wagging, bleeper ready. It's an angry, wagging an angry finger um, and, and, and nothing else. Um, but what is interesting, actually, is that you won has not only fixed to a sort of a new low against the dollar, but on its broad basket. And that has impacts throughout the rest of the world. And we've already seen this week some of this impact materialize with sort of surprising rate cuts in a number of central banks in in the Asian region. The Kiwis did 50 instead of the 25 expected. Mm-hmm. RBI, the Reserve Bank of India, did 35 rather than 25 expected. And Bank of Thailand pulled 25 out of sort of thin air that no one expected. So it's, you know, unfortunately, going back to the original question, Mike, we are kind of seeing the shots fired in a currency war. And the problem is, is that if everyone cuts rates to weaken their currency, we, you know, we're not on the gold standard. The whole world can't devalue against sort of a central peg. If everybody wants a weaker currency and cuts rates to, to deliver it, all you're going to end up is essentially right back where you started on a relative basis except with less ammunition in terms of conventional rate cuts to fight against the next global recession. So it's, it's a pretty stupid policy, in my opinion. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. 
It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Just if we can backtrack just slightly, because I think this currency manipulator label is is interesting just from a political standpoint. Clearly, the the criteria aren't quite there right now. Well, they're, for, nowhere, they're nowhere near there. So does this leave us in a really strange position where the government is now, in the U.S., is now kind of faced with a year of testing and, and you know, thinking about whether or not this is a viable thing? What is the actual practical implication? If it's possible that they're not going to be found to be a currency manipulator, what's the, what's the upshot of all well, this? Well, they, I mean, they were found. Obviously, I don't have inside information, but I strongly suspect that the... Um, the state of play was that Donald Trump called up Steve Mnuchin and said, we're calling them a currency manipulator. And that was that. Um, Because certainly on the basis of the criteria that the Treasury has been using in their semi-annual report, China, the level of intervention that China conducts, which has basically been zero over the last several years on a net basis, is nowhere near where it needs to be, which I think is 2% of GDP um, to be called a currency manipulator. So I think Trump had tweeted out earlier that day that China was manipulating its currency. Isn't this awful? And I think he just rang up Mnuchin and said, all right, bang, let's, you know, let's do it. Let's do this thing. Um, in terms of the practical implications, as I said, it's kind of just writing an angry letter or waving a finger and, uh, in, in, in disgust. The literal interpretation of the law is that they are supposed to consult with the IMF and with China, hold talks about fixing this bilateral misalignment. But as we know, China and the United States are already engaged in sporadic trade talks, of which the currency is one of the one of the issues. I don't think anyone expects Donald Trump to call on the IMF to adjudicate a dispute because he's a master negotiator. So other than well, less said about that, the better. But uh, but other than a diplomatic sort of chip. Uh, that's now been kind of handed over. It's not, and yeah, this, and that's the thing. Yeah. That the irony is that it's now been played. Mm-hmm. And insofar as China was worried about weakening the currency so they could, you know, because they didn't want to be called a manipulator, well, now they've been called a manipulator. So what's to stop them from weakening the currency even further? There really isn't anything. Now, I wanted to get back to uh, something you mentioned earlier, which was these shock rate cuts uh, we saw this week. Well, maybe not shock, but India, Thailand, New Zealand, all cut uh, a little bit more than what the uh, markets were expecting. We saw this uh, ferocious rally in bonds the world over in the wake of that. Now, uh, we're having people openly discuss and with a straight face, seriously, the idea of negative treasury yields in the U.S. You know, I know you've written before, uh, eventually people are going to just dig a hole and put their money (laughs) in a hole. I mean, is there a real risk of sort of a a major banking crisis if that, if if rates are to get too low and especially say deposit rates on on savings accounts get deeply negative? I mean, how do you see this all going if people predicting negative rates in the U.S. are correct? Well, I mean, we're all going to have to find new jobs because, <laughs> frankly, there won't be very many Bloomberg terminals sold because a lot of, a lot of people in our industry will be out of work. Yeah. Um, the U.S. is a very highly financialized economy. Uh, the money market industry by itself still runs $3 trillion. If you 
basically impose negative yields at the short end of the curve, and that's the only place that these money market funds can operate, then why would I pay somebody you know, a dollar today to get 95 cents back in a year's time. Because you might get less otherwise? Well, <laughs> no, I'll dig a hole. In, I mean, literally, right. <laughs> I'll, buy, I'll, I'll buy a safe and dig a hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, let, me, let, me, let me ask you guys a question. Let's turn the tables around. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the time we have for yeah. today. <laughs> you make the call. Okay. All right. So let's say um, we're just going to, I, I don't know what your wealth aspirations are, but let's say that you wanted to have a million dollars in 20 years whatever your income is, uh, say you make hundred grand a year and you've got whatever, kids and mortgages and all blah, blah, blah. Um, and you, so you save a little bit every, every, uh, you know, every month. You want to have a million dollars in 20 years' time. If interest rates are 5%, consider how much money you would have to save every month for 20 years to get that million dollars. Now consider how much you'd have to save if rates were minus 1%. Would you save more or would you save less? Would you spend more or would you spend less? I would argue very strongly that you would spend less and save more because you aren't going to get capital returns uh, or you're not going to get returns, interest returns um, from that you would have had if, you, if rates were, say, 5%. Um, so I, I think this idea that negative rates are going to sort of spur consumption and, and reflate the economy, there's been no empirical evidence that's happened in Japan. There's been no empirical evidence that's happened in Switzerland. There's been no empirical evidence that's happened in Europe. So the idea that it's somehow a good idea in the United States is frankly absurd. Look at the banks in Europe, look at the banks in Japan, and look at the banks in the United States. One of these things is not like the other. Mm -hmm. Uh, The U.S. banks have done demonstrably better than banks in other parts of the world that have had negative interest rates. Ask yourself why. Well, on that note, I think it's time to talk about the craziest things we've all seen this week in markets. And uh, I'm going to start with a call we got into the hotline from a character on Twitter known as Twiggy Sunday. Let's listen to what he believed to be the craziest thing he saw in markets this week, because i got to admit it's pretty good. The tip of the hat goes to Tracy Alloway, who quoted at Quantane, stating that the biggest ETF in the world SPY is organized around a secret list of 11 individuals aged 26 to 29, and upon their deaths, the trust will be forced to delist, liquidate, and distribute its assets. I have no idea whether this is true, but it fits my definition of bonkers. (laughs) That really does fit a, a definition of bonkers. I have to agree with Twiggy on that. And he's wondering if it's true, and in fact is true. I asked our uh, ETF guru here, Eric Balchunas, about this, and he said, it is technically true uh, with a lot of ETFs, um, but it has to do with some arcane uh, nuances of securities laws. But let me just read you the documents here. The trust is scheduled to terminate on the first to occur of A, January 22nd, 2118, or B, the date 20 years after the death of the last survivor of 11 persons named in the trust agreement, the oldest of whom was born in 1990 and the youngest of whom was born in 1993. So uh, I imagine they'll fix that when 2118 or the death of those people uh, approaches, but I, I don't think anyone knows who these people are. It's a very, very bizarre uh, thing in the weeds of the spy, the biggest ETF in the land. Um, so good work, Twiggy Sunday, on that. Anyway, Cameron, that one's going to be hard to top, but let's hear uh, what you've seen this week. What's the craziest thing you've seen this week? 
Oh man, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I, this is boring. I mean, twenty-year <laughs> da- Danish mortgage bonds offering a negative yield. You know, issued at a negative yield. Um, the yield on the European um, investment grade aggregate index went negative, and that's an index that includes yes, government bonds, but also investment grade corporate bonds. If you look at the list, I looked at the list of every single bond in the European corporate universe. Uh, there's like 2,800 bonds, more than a thousand of them have negative yields. It's, I mean, it's, it's a mad, mad, mad. It's mad not world. even. It's not even Wonderland or Oz because uh, th- that th- those those countries are too normal <laughs> for the, for the, for what's going on here. I mean, I, and I know it's not exactly new. But it's just it just every every day I come in and I feel like I've dropped an anvil in my foot. Because... <laughs> you'll, you'll get desensitized to the anvil, though. <laughs> I got to say the Danish mortgage bonds. I don't think I would ever have guessed that mortgage bonds, mortgage bonds would would go negative. No, I did get I wrote something about this. and I did get feedback from a Danish reader uh, who said that the mortgages themselves. I was going to I was wondering are, that. Uh, the effective rate on the mortgages themselves are not zero or negative because there's a fee here and a, and a you know a, um, a punitive little thing there. So it still makes sense for the banks to issue these right. these these bonds at negative yield, uh, and they're getting snapped up by European and Japanese investors um, because you know I can get zero here, minus five basis points here versus minus eighty there. Well, gee, I'll, I'll take minus five. Emily, can you top negative yielding Danish mortgage bond? Well, I can't even say it. Danish mortgage. <laughs> Katie, can you say Danish? Say Danish. <laughs> say Danish mortgage bonds. Say it seven times fast. I feel like I'm the Swedish chef. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. Um, well, funnily enough, mine also has a negative flavor, but uh, this one is just about this bump that uh, the German ten-year bond yield uh, got, and this was from some a sort of a misleading headline that was. Uh, saying the government was considering raising more debt, which it obviously does very little of, um, to fund efforts to tackle climate change. And so the 10-year went from negative 58 basis points to negative 53. And that kind of begs the question that if you could do it for that, why wouldn't you then start raising some money? That's right. Yeah. If you can raise money and and, uh, get paid for it, why not? I agree. And I would point out that headline, I think, said the government in Germany was mulling something. I, you know, I hate I don't think we're allowed to give trading advice, but personally, I would never trade on any story about someone mulling anything. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's a word to the wise. The other the other quick one that I have is um, is an interesting headline based one as well, um, that there was a story out from, I believe this is Zero Hedge, um, saying that they had been contacted urgently, like this was in the subject line, by a Fed researcher who was looking for a piece of analysis. This is a sell-side analysis that they quoted in, in a story earlier that day. And the analysis was on the possibility of the Fed needing to launch QE as soon as the fourth quarter to shore up liquidity in the market. And so this caused a bit of a stir and they said, you know, actually, probably if the Fed needs to find sell-side analysis, they can find it somewhere other than <laughs> zero hedge. <laughs> okay, not bad. Katie, what do you have for us? So I'm going to take us on a bit of a tangent, but I'm going to bring it back to market. So just buckle up. So this is a story that's near and dear to my heart uh, since I grew up in Westfield, New Jersey. Oh, but, a Jersey girl, aren't Oh, you? yeah. But there's this great article Thursday on the terminal, and the headline is, 
NJ couple spooked by Watcher sell 1.4 million home at loss. And oh, I know the Watcher. Oh, do you? <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, do you know who he is? <laughs> well, no, no one knows who he is. But yeah. go, go on, go on. I, I want to hear your, your so telling of the... So in this idyllic neighborhood in Westfield, this there's this beautiful house. It looks to be yellow. And the family bought the home in 2014 and has just been getting creepy, spooky letters from a man who calls him. I assume it's a man. I shouldn't. By someone who calls himself the Watcher, talking about the couple's kids, how he's just been watching them, as you can tell from the name. And they they tried to sue the previous homeowners since the Watchers followed the house around. They apparently got letters as well. And uh, the lawsuit was dismissed, and they they had to sell the home. They never moved in, and they sold it for less than a million dollars after buying it at $1.4 million. Five years ago. So they knocked off half a million dollars off the price. They sure did. I suspect whoever bid on that house is the watcher. (laughs) Yeah, they should (laughs) email them. But uh, so my point is, if that's all it takes to knock half a million dollars off the house's price, I think that's pretty bad for the real estate market. That, if it's that, that easy that to drive easy. down the value. Yeah, and if you're spook- worried bonds are overpriced, maybe send some spooky letters to <laughs> the Treasury Department. You never know. It's kind of a Scooby-Doo kind of plot, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> get away with that one. You guys should read about it, though, because, um, you know, the, if you look at the court filing, you can see the letters themselves and... They're they're pretty. Creepy. It is. It's an amazing story. I, that New York Magazine had a story, I think, three or four years ago about it. So so Google that. It's a crazy story. These crazy things are all very hard to top. I'm not even going to attempt a crazy thing this week. I'll be back next week with my craziest things, maybe of the last two weeks. I'll also point out, Emily, that Sarah Ponzak, my co-host, who you're filling in for, is on vacation this week. She actually called the hotline to offer the craziest thing she's seen on vacation. <laughs> That's uh, dedicated. This week. It was. We were going to play it, but I think it's a scheme for her to put her whole vacation on her expense account. So we better not play it. But we'll uh, see Sarah next week. And uh, we hope to see you all next week as well. Katie Greifeld, Cameron Christ, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And Emily, thanks for co-hosting. Oh, thanks for having me too. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate us and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Emily Barrett is at NotThatECB. Cameron Kreiss is at Fifth Rule. And Katie Greifeld is at KGreifeld. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at at podcasts. And that hotline number again is 646-324-3490. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next time. Hey guys, it's Sarah Ponsek. I'm trying to reach what goes up. I figured since I'm away on vacation, maybe I would show the craziest thing I've seen while here. So I'm up in the Canadian Rockies, and at first I was going to say the lakes because they're all crazy blue and pretty much glow when you look at them. But then I was actually thinking, as we were driving along one of the roads, we actually saw a couple black bears, and that wasn't the crazy part. The crazy part was that there were some families actually getting out of their cars, holding their kids and their babies next to them, 
standing about five, 10 feet away from the bears. Uh, so that was uh, pretty crazy, maybe a little bit dangerous. Um, but I know I'm missing a pretty crazy week back in markets as well. And President Trump tweeted about yield curve. So I'm sure when I'm back next week, things will be just as crazy. Have a good show. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. 